Okay, so this morning, if you are at Botany, you should have on your top a label that says introducing. Um, if you don't have one because you snuck in and didn't get one, it actually doesn't matter. It's not crucial. So don't worry, we won't get you to put your hand up and get one or anything like that. Um, but it's, it's kind of just to start us thinking about how we introduce ourselves and how we think about ourselves. Uh, by the way, if you're watching this in, in Hastings, kia ora to you. Uh, hopefully you have been given one of these as well as you came to Harataki and Shona's house. So hopefully we'll get that process working well. If you're watching this or listening to this over the internet, then you won't have a label because we haven't figured out how to make the internet spit one out for you. But you can just imagine that you're wearing a label. So the idea behind the label is this. When you meet a new group of people for the first time, how do you introduce yourself? What, what are some of the descriptors that you use to, to describe who you are? Now, sometimes that will be limited because of how safe a group of strangers is or isn't. There may be things about you that are, that are pretty core to who you are, but you wouldn't say those kinds of things necessarily in a group. So maybe the deeper question is not how would you introduce yourself, but maybe the deeper question is how do you view yourself? What kind of sense of, of identity do you have? What's your value? Or maybe another way to ask the question is as you came in this morning, what kind of labels do you have on your soul, on your heart? What are some of the words that you would describe yourself in the quietness uh, of your own being to yourself? You may not say those out loud to anyone else, but how do you view yourself? That's what we want to look at uh, today. So I'm not going to use this. Over here I've got three chairs. And what I want to suggest this morning is that we all view ourselves, we think about our identity and who we are at the core of our being in uh, one of these three ways, or maybe all of them. Uh, some of us, or actually a good number of us probably, uh, we capture our identity by what we do. And so as we think about who we are or, or, or what we're like as people, we, we define ourselves by our success. We introduce ourselves in terms of what our career is or our, our job is. We, we feel good about ourselves based on our abilities. So we may have some great musical skill or we may be particularly good at a sport. We have, may, may have achieved academically in our lives. We may have a really good uh, job that gives us a really high sense of worth. And so we view ourselves, we understand ourselves, we put our identity based on what it is we do. It's a generalization, but it's generally true that this is especially how men think. As guys, we will often give ourselves a sense of value and identity based on what we do. And that is why, especially as guys, when we meet someone new, one of the first things we ask another guy is, oh, so what do you do? And that's not only men, that is also women. We can all come and base ourselves on what we do, what, what counsellors and psychologists would call our, our competency. Another way that we give ourselves a sense of identity or value or worth is how we feel. And so the, the, the sense of value we have or the, our identity is based on how we feel. We're defined by our, by our feelings. 
This is true especially if you grew up in a relatively healthy or relatively functional family. If you grew up with a reasonable sense of self-esteem, if you've got good friends around you that, that bring encouragement and compliments into your life, you may have a reasonable sense of self-worth. And that's based on, often on, on how we feel about ourselves. It's fueled by encouragement and by compliments. But our identity is based on, on our feelings. It's interesting, actually, to see how this has become almost the key way of finding our identity in the last two decades or so in our modern world. Because for many people now, they base their identity almost solely, or at least primarily, on how they feel. For example, last Sunday, I uh, put up a photo of uh, a woman in Britain dressed as a baby. And I, I explained that I come across this weird, well, I call it weird, phenomenon of people who view themselves as adult babies. And so she uh, lives in the UK, she was in her mid-20s, she held a normal job, but when she got home, she would climb into a massive size cot and dress herself as a baby because, and this is the quote, she identified herself as an adult baby. In other words, she felt the most complete when she was dressed up with diapers and a romper suit. And so she identified herself that way based on her feelings. If you stop and think about it, the whole debate around uh, sexual orientation, the whole debate around uh, which gender you are or how do you identify your gender is all based on feelings. So while someone may uh, be a man in terms of their, their body, they may feel like a woman trapped in a man's body. Therefore, their identity is how they feel. So this is becoming a key way in our modern world about how we identify ourselves. The third way we identify ourselves, the third chair, if you like, is we are who we relate to. So we are what we do, we are how we feel, or we are who we relate to. And so in this chair, we, are, we define ourselves by our relationships. We define ourselves um, by being loved or being needed, and it's the people we relate to that give us our meaning and our purpose and our value in life. So often the label that we wear is the label uh, about our roles. I'm, I am a wife, or I am a, a husband. I am a parent. I'm a boyfriend or girlfriend. And because I'm loved, because I'm in relationship with this, these people, that gives me my sense of purpose and my sense of value. That gives me my identity. Again, generalization, but this is often how women primarily label themselves. If men generally are about what we do, women often primarily will label themselves, I am based on who I relate to. The reality is that we all sit, probably in all three of these seats, and our sense of identity is a complex mix of the value of what we do and, and how we feel and who we relate to, what counsellors call our competency and our worth and our belonging. The problem is that we need to understand is that our sense of identity, if we sit in any of these three seats, there's, there's a dark side to these chairs. So if you choose to base your identity on what you do, on your competency, the downside of that is when you don't do well. 
And so when our identity is based on how well we're doing and then we're made redundant or we lose our job or we don't make the sports team that we tried out for or we don't get the, the, the role in the production that we auditioned for, then our sense of identity and self-esteem and self-worth comes crashing down. To the dark side of this chair is if we miss out on the job or we make a complete mess of something and get fired or we try and build something and it's a complete wreck, then actually our, our identity, if we're sitting in this chair, becomes heavily broken. That's why a number of us walked in today with a label on our souls that we would never say to anyone, but often we have a sense of failure. The dark side of, of sitting in this chair and basing our identity on how we feel is that while our feelings can be good and we can feel positive about ourselves and we may have people in our lives who give us encouragement and compliments that build that sense of worth, the reality is that we all know that we go through seasons of life when our feelings aren't that high. Uh, there's a good number of us uh, around the Western world that suffer from mental illness that struggle with depression or things like that. But it can be as simple as, as, a, as a critical comment, a, a sarcastic uh, comment that someone just throws in, a negative statement. Or for many of us, it can go far deeper. There can be something in our past that we feel deeply ashamed about, that we've never told anyone. Or perhaps something was done to us and we were the victim of something we had no control over and we've carried a sense of shame ever since. And so while it may feel like building our identity based on how we feel can be good, actually, again, many people walked in this morning and the hidden label on your soul said ashamed. Or we can base our identity on who we relate to, that sense of belonging, the relationships we're in, but... We've all known relationships that have fallen over, haven't we? A romantic relationship stops because our boyfriend or girlfriend dumps us. Or even what we would hope is the most secure of relationships in marriage. A spouse walks out the door and doesn't come back. A friendship ends acrimoniously. Or it can be as simple as we simply don't get invited to a party that everyone else seems to be going to. Many of us have been scarred and carry a label that says rejected. And that's the problem of each of these cheers. In our world, we base our sense of who we are and our identity on, on what we do and how we feel and who we relate to. And yet, it doesn't always work. And many of us have at times, and maybe today, feel rejected. Or we feel ashamed. Or we feel rejected. What Peter's going to tell us today is that there's a better way. There's a different way to find our identity and our sense of who we are. So if you've got a Bible with you, I'd love you to come with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We are in the final passage in this opening section to Peter's letter. Peter's letter, as we're going to see next week, as we start into the, the next section, is all about living a great life for God. 
He is going to predominantly talk in his letter about the call that God has placed on our lives if we're followers of Jesus to live a life that glorifies God in the hope of bringing others into the family of God. That's what the letter's primarily about. But before he gets to the idea that we are called, Peter wants us to understand that we are chosen. So before we get to the concept of what he calls at the beginning of his letter that we are exiles and how we should live as exiles, he begins by explaining to us that we are elect exiles, that we are loved and chosen and forgiven by God. And he's walked through a number of different uh, key ideas about what that looks like in our lives, that we've been chosen for a glorious future, that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have an amazing eternity waiting for you that God has planned. We were chosen for a distinctive lifestyle. We're meant to be holy because our Father is holy and our lives are meant to mirror his life. Uh, Peter has reminded us that we were chosen at an incredibly costly price. We were redeemed, we were freed from slavery, but it cost something incredible. It cost the the, the death of Jesus. And then last week we saw we were chosen to a deepening maturity. We were not simply saved and forgiven and loved to stay as spiritual babies. We were chosen so we would grow and become more and more like Jesus. And then today Peter finishes here, and in many ways the section we're in today in verses 4 to 10 of 1 Peter 2, is almost the climax, I think, of this opening part of his letter. He's wanting us to understand who we are if we are followers of Jesus. He wants us to understand our new identity. And so that's where he is, he's going to take us today in this passage. It's the climactic passage. It's how he's choosing to finish this opening thing. And what I want you to see as we go through this passage today, if you've got it on your paper Bible or your app or whatever on your phone, what I want you to see is there are no commands in this particular part of the letter. Peter's not going to command us to do anything. He simply wants us to recognize what God has done for us in Christ and to start realigning our thinking, to start understanding who we are and who he's made us to be. The key idea that Peter is going to get across to us today is this. Our worth and value is not defined by what we do or how we feel or who we relate to. Peter's coming along and he's saying these three cheers are all the wrong way to try and find your identity and your sense of worth and value in life. Our worth and value is not defined by what we do or how we feel or who we relate to. Instead, our worth and value in life is found in Jesus. That's really the core idea of what he's trying to say. Our worth and value is not found by sitting in this seat and and trying to find our value in our own competency and achievements. It's not found sitting here and trying to find our value in some kind of the feelings of worthiness or acceptability. It's not found by sitting here and looking at the relationships around us and saying, I'm valuable because of who I relate to and the roles I have in life. Instead, what Peter's going to say is instead of sitting in any of those three chairs, what we need to do is find our identity and our value and our worth in life in our relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's where we're going. So what I want to do is I want to walk through this passage with you in these key verses from verses 4 to 10 of 1 Peter 2, and I want to explain quickly what Peter's saying, 
And then I want to come back and relate what Peter's saying to these three chairs. So let's, uh, let's move quite quickly here. The first thing that Peter is going to say here is we are his new temple. We are his new temple. Verses 4 and 5 is the first part of this passage. If you've got it there, have a look at it as I read. As you come to him, which is Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones. That's where we get the name of the network of churches we're in, by the way. You also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house or temple to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter is, in this passage, going to dive deep back into the Old Testament. And the first place he goes to is the whole idea of the temple. The temple was the big building in Jerusalem that was built by King Solomon to replace what was called the tabernacle, which was a roving tent of worship. And the temple became the permanent place of worship for the nation of Israel. That's where they went to worship God. And in a very real sense, that's where God dwelt on earth. So if you wanted to worship God, you had to travel to Jerusalem and go into the temple because that's where God was. So you could, yeah, you could sing a psalm out on a hill somewhere, but if you wanted to worship God, you wanted to bring a sacrifice and worship him the way he'd uh, asked to in, in his word, you traveled to the temple in Jerusalem. But what Peter is saying is that's all changed. The temple now is not the building. God is not worried about this building in Jerusalem anymore. Jesus, in fact, highlighted this coming change in his conversation with a, a woman of Samaria in John chapter 4. Uh, she asked the question, our ancestors worshipped at this mountain where they were, Mount Gerizim, because she was a Samaritan. But she said, but you Jews claim that the place we should worship is in, in Jerusalem at the temple. And Jesus said, woman, believe me, a time is coming when we will worship the Father neither at this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Why? Because the time is coming, Jesus said, when everything's going to change. The temple's not going to be a building. It's not going to be a place. It's going to be a people. And with the coming of the Holy Spirit, after Jesus died and rose again and went back to heaven, with the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church, that became the temple. So Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you've received from God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. In the context, he's actually writing about sexual purity and saying what you do with your body matters because if you're a follower of Jesus, you are now the temple of the Spirit. The God who once dwelt in the holy of holies in this building in Jerusalem now lives in you if you're a follower of Christ. If you have the Spirit, you're now a walking, breathing, living temple of God. But not only you as an individual, but we together as his church. So a couple of chapters earlier in the same letter, Paul said, don't you know that you yourselves, plural, are God's temple? singular, and that God's spirit lives among you all. It's plural. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. This is a phenomenal change. It used to be that you would have to go to that place because that place was sacred, and that's where God was. 
But now what Peter's alluding to is what Paul was saying is that now, no, no, there's not a temple to go to. We are the temple. If we're followers of Jesus, the Spirit lives in each of us and the Spirit dwells in the, the community of faith, the church. So the temple's mobile. That's why often you'll hear people say the church is not the building. The church is the people. So even if a, a gathering of, of, of a local church is meeting in one of the most beautiful cathedrals in the world, the beauty is actually not in the building. The beauty is in the people. Because every local church is a temple to the living God. And, and, and it can meet in a, in a school hall with a few people from different backgrounds and nationalities and, and social standings and ethnicities, but we come together as God's people, united by the Holy Spirit who is in all of us if we've trusted in Christ. This is now just as holy as the holy of holies in Solomon's temple. That's what Peter and Paul are saying. And Peter, wanting us to understand our new identity, says we are all part of this new thing God's doing. He doesn't dwell in a building anymore. He dwells in churches. And you and I are living stones in a new temple that he is making. And then he extends the metaphor even further, you notice, in the second half of verse 5. He says, not only are we living stones in this temple, but we're also priests in this temple, offering sacrifices to God. Now, I'm a little disappointed that none of you actually seem to have brought your sacrifice today. No one came in with a couple of turtle doves or a lamb. Um, again, because things have changed. You were right not to, by the way. Please don't bring a lamb or a turtle dove next week. Because we now bring what Peter calls in verse 5 spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. Well, what does he mean? Well, this is some, a list of some of them elsewhere in the New Testament. If you go to the book of Hebrews chapter 13, the writer there says that our praise and worship and prayer is a sacrifice. It's an offering to God. So whenever we come here, and as the temple, as the church, we sing praises or we pray together or follow the leading of someone praying. As we sing songs of praise to him, we're bringing him an offering. We're making a sacrifice to God. But it's not just all the spiritual stuff. Because in the very next verse in Hebrews 13, the writer says, doing good to others. Stopping to help someone change a tire. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's an act of worship. That's a sacrifice to God. Sharing with others generously is an act of worship, a sacrifice to God. According to Romans 15, so is sharing your faith with someone. According to Philippians 4, so is giving generously to God's work. In fact, Paul will say in Romans 12 that bringing all of our lives to God is a living sacrifice. What that means is whatever we do for God can be a sacrifice of worship to him. Why? Because everything's changed. We don't go to a building and worship God anymore. We are the building. We are the temple. And every one of us is a living stone in the new temple of God if we're a follower of Jesus. That's the first part of our identity that Peter labels. The second thing Peter is going to say is that we are his honoured followers. The idea of honour is significant here. Look at verses 6 to 8. For in Scripture it says, 
See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Now this starts to get a little tricky. Again, though, Peter is deep in the Old Testament, and he quotes three different passages of the Old Testament. They're footnoted in my NIV, Isaiah 28, Psalm 118, and Isaiah 8. And all three of these passages that he quotes from the Old Testament uh, are about the idea of this stone. So what he's doing is he's picking up the idea from verse 4. So he started this comment in verse 4 that Jesus is the living stone who was rejected by people. And then in verse 5, he talks about how that relates to us. We're all now living stones in this temple he's making. Then in verse 6, he's coming back to the idea from verse 4. And he quotes these three passages to show that Jesus is the one who many people reject. In fact, the idea is that Jesus, in a sense, is the stone that in the middle of a river... And every, every drop in that river come, of humanity comes down the river and, and the stone blocks that and you either go one way or the other around the stone. That's kind of almost the imagery he's got in mind. But he's trying to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises of the Old Testament, of the cornerstone, the one that God would build his new temple on, even though that cornerstone was rejected. That's kind of basically the idea of what he's saying. He's picking up the idea that he first introduced back in the book of Acts. This is Peter preaching. And he's preaching to the Jewish council, the leaders, who a few weeks before had handed Jesus over to be crucified. Peter's now in front of them, just like Jesus had been on trial. Because Peter and John had healed a, a man who was lame in the name of Jesus. And Peter basically preaches to them, and then he quotes the middle of these three uh, passages that he quotes in, in his letter, the passage from Psalm 118. And he says, Jesus is the stone that you build is rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And he says, salvation is found in no one else, because there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which you can be saved. In other words, what you do with Jesus, Peter is saying, is fundamental. You can either reject Jesus, the stone, or accept him. And what he's acknowledging here in this letter is that many people reject Jesus. And what he says in verses 7 and 8 is that those who reject Jesus one day will themselves be rejected by God. But he's saying to his readers, but that isn't you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've chosen to accept the rejected one, is essentially the idea. And what he says then about you and I, for those of us who have chosen to put our trust in Jesus, we're not rejected. We are, in fact, accepted because of our faith in him. See, that's what he says, verse 6, this quotation from the prophet Isaiah. See, I lay in a stone in Zion, a precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So those who trust in the rejected one find themselves accepted is the irony of what he's trying to point out. There is no shame for those who choose the one who was shamed. 
And that idea is then underlined in verse 7. Now, unfortunately, I love the NIV 2011. That's the English version we use here at Botany Life. I think it's the best English translation, but I think it, it botches verse 7. The way the NIV translates verse 7 is, Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But I much prefer the way the ESV translates it. The honour is for you who believe. So it's talking about those of us who believe. But the NIV does two things I don't like. One is it translates the main word as precious. And I don't think that's the best way to translate this particular word. The word, I think, should be translated the way the ESV has done it, with the idea of honour. Because in verse 6, he's talking about shame. And the converse of shame is honour. And I think Peter's talking about the sense of for those who believe. The other thing I think the NIV gets wrong, and it's a complex sentence in the original language, but the NIV says the thing that is honoured, or the thing that is precious, better, the thing that is honoured, is the stone, which is Jesus. But I don't think that's actually what Peter says. And I think, the, the, again, the, the ESV's got it right. The honour is for you who believe. Here's how... I'll translate verse 6 and 7. This is the Brad version of the New Testament. It's not published yet, but here we go. But if you put the end of verse 6 with us, this is what Peter's saying. The one who believes in him will by no means, will never be put to shame. Therefore, there's honour for you who believe. You've got to remember, Peter is writing to an honour-shame culture, which some of you might have come from as well where the idea of being honoured or, or feeling ashamed is actually really significant in the culture you're from. That was the same for Peter's culture. And what Peter is saying is that you may feel rejected because of your faith in Jesus. We've already talked in this letter about how many of these followers felt marginalised because of their faith in him. And what Peter is trying to show is that, that happened to Jesus too. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. But you know what? He's the cornerstone. He's the key element on which God is building this whole new work, the church, the new living temple of living stones. The stone that the builders rejected is actually at the heart of what the Father is doing. And that means if you've put your trust in him, in the rejected one, you're not rejected. You don't need to feel shame. Because one day, God will honour you for your faith. That's a staggering thought. Because all we've done, you and I, is respond to God's grace. All we've done is accept this gift of life that he's offered to us through Jesus. All we've done is exercise a little bit of minuscule faith to trust in him. And Peter says because of that, God is going to honour you, not shame you. We are not only part of this new temple, but we're his honoured followers. The third point that he makes then is in the final uh, close of this passage in verses 9 and 10. We're his much-loved people. But you, he says, you, however, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Again, Peter's diving deep into the Old Testament to bring some significant ideas in to tell these new followers of Jesus who were mainly Gentile about how precious and chosen and loved they really are. Verse 9 goes all the way back to the story of the Exodus. And when the nation of Israel had escaped from slavery in Egypt and they'd come to Mount Sinai where God was about to give them the law and the Ten Commandments, God said these precious words to them through Moses. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words, Moses, that you were to speak to the Israelites. Did you pick up the words from from 1 Peter. And that third line, my treasured possession, my kingdom of priests, a holy nation. What Peter's doing is he's reaching back into the Old Testament and saying, Israel was the special people of God. But now, you Gentile readers, you've been brought into that. It's not that you've replaced Israel, it's that you've been drafted in and you've been grafted into all of those blessings and you are now the special people of God. You are now included in the much-loved family. You are God's incredible possession. The God of heaven carries your photo in his wallet because he loves you. And then in verse 10, he goes to another part of the Old Testament, to the prophet Hosea. Hosea prophesied really at the end of the northern kingdom of Israel that was sent into captivity by the Assyrians. And Hosea was given possibly the most difficult task that any of the prophets were ever given. God told him to go marry a prostitute. And he married this woman called Goma, and he had some kids with her, and then she left him, walked out on the marriage, and went back to her life of prostitution. And, and Hosea and his struggling relationship with Goma became a representation of how hurt God was when his people turned to false gods and idols instead of him. But in the middle of the story, at the beginning of the story, really, in Hosea chapter 1, it says, Goma conceived and gave birth to a daughter. This is their second child. And then Yahweh said to Hosea, call her Lo-Rahamai, which means not loved. Just, just think about that for a minute. You meet Homer, uh, Hosea and Goma in the street, and they're pushing a pram, and they've got a new little baby girl. And you go, oh, she's gorgeous. What's her name? Not loved. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty sad. Her first day, it's, what's your name, dear? The teacher asks, not loved. But the point was that her name and his family life was sending a message to this nation who had run away from God. For I will no longer show love to Israel, Yahweh says. And then uh, after she had weaned the daughter, Gomer had another son, and, the, and Yahweh said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. It's another message. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. It is the message that, God, that Hosea had to give the nation of Israel that God was going to judge them for their sin and idolatry and turning away from him. But that isn't the end word. Because in the next chapter, God says, but I'm going to bring you back. But I'm going to be gracious because I'm a merciful God. And he makes this beautiful statement at the end of Hosea 2. I will plant her, the nation of Israel, back in the land. And I will show my love to the one I call not loved. And I will say to those who are now not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. 
message of Hosea is that even in the face of horrendous judgment, God is a God of grace who offers second chances to rebels and sinners like you and me. And for those who choose to come back to him, to turn to him, to embrace his grace, they find an exquisite love from a God who invites them into his people, a love that they never, ever deserved, but that God gives them graciously. That's what Peter's quoting in verse 10. Peter's saying, it's not only Israel and Hosea's day, that's you and me. We were far from God. We were rebels against him. We never deserved his love. And he's brought us in and made us part of his chosen people. We are his new temple. We are his honoured followers on which he has bestowed honour. We are his much loved and cherished people. And that's why Peter is saying our worth and our value is not defined on what we do or how we feel or who we relate to. Actually, our worth and value is found or should be found in Jesus. Now, you may be sitting there going, okay, I get the big idea and I understand the three points he made, but good night, I don't see how they relate to the chairs. Do what you're thinking? Good. Let me take these three chairs that you and I so often sit in and let me show you how what Peter is saying is so crucially important. We are his new temple. What that means is that our competency is actually in Jesus and in his success and not our own. See, the danger is when we sit in this chair and say we are what we do, that I, my identity and my value depends on what I do and my accomplishments and my successes, we all fail. We don't make it. But the good news of the gospel is that it's not spelt D-O. It's spelt D-O-N-E. In other words, my standing and value and acceptance before God is not based on what I do. It's based on what Jesus has done. And that's not only true in salvation, that I can't earn my way to God. And that, in fact, I have to trust what Jesus did in dying on the cross and rising again. It's in all of life. It's my whole identity. I am never acceptable to God. I am never significant because of what I do. It doesn't matter how great my career is. It doesn't matter how far up the corporate ladder I've climbed. It doesn't matter how skillful I am at whatever it is I do. My competency is actually as a believer in Jesus. And it's because he was faithful. It's because he was accepted. It's because he was a success. That's what makes me valuable. So I'm not valued based on what I do. My identity is actually in Jesus. And it's based on what he has already done on my behalf. And that is why, by the way, Peter will say at the end of verse 5 that we can bring spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That means that whatever I do for his glory is acceptable to God. Not because I'm amazing. Because I offer it through Jesus. And it's his competency. So I can give a little bit of money to church. And that's an acceptable sacrifice to God, not because I'm an amazing giver, but because Jesus is amazing. And I'm simply giving in response to him.
My standing with God, my identity in life, my value as a person does not rest on what I do or my accomplishments or my skills or my strengths. My competency is in Jesus. So is my worth. My identity is not based on how I feel because my feelings can go up and my feelings can come down again. And one day I can feel worthy, but the next day I can feel shame. My identity is based on the fact that my worth is found in Jesus. And because of my simple faith in him and my acceptance of his grace, I am honoured by the living God. My sense of worth comes from Jesus. My competency comes from Jesus. And my sense of belonging comes from Jesus. Ultimately, I find my identity and my worth not in my marriage, not in my kids, not in my friendships, but in the fact that I belong to Jesus. And what that means is it doesn't matter if my kids are rascals. It doesn't matter if my marriage might be hard work. It doesn't matter if my friends reject me. I belong to Jesus. And that's where my value and my worth is found. See, what Peter is saying is if we choose to sit in these chairs, our life is going to go up and down like a yo-yo and our sense of identity and value is going to be all over the place. Because we are not what we do and we are not simply what we feel and we are not simply who we relate to. Our value and worth comes from Jesus because our competency is in Jesus and our worth is in Jesus and our belonging is in Jesus. So what does this mean for our lives as we finish? Let me suggest three implications. Number one, and this one might not be as obvious to you, but I want to hit on it. This whole concept is a challenge to our individualism. You may not have noticed this in First Peter, but this whole description of our identity is based on who we are in the church. This is about we. This is not I. And we are a part of a Western culture that highlights the I. That's all about the individual. And what Peter's arguing here is that our identity is very much tied to one another. We are all together in this. We are all one living stone each in this beautiful temple called the church. We are one honoured person among a whole group of followers of Jesus. We are part of his cherished people. And actually, we need to find our identity much more in the together of the church. That's why the whole idea of an unchurched Christian, someone who says, I love Jesus, but I don't like the church, is just biblically wrong. One pastor, Daniel Doriani, has written this, following Christ entails joining his community, the church. I love this bit. The freelance Christian who follows Jesus but is too good or too busy or too self-sufficient for the church is a walking contradiction. I love that. This whole passage challenges our individualism. But perhaps even more importantly, this confronts our idolatries. 
See, if we're tempted to sit in this chair and claim that we are what we do, we make what we do an idol. If we find our significance in our career or our business, we're making that an idol. We may not be bowing down to the statue or to the company logo as we walk through the front door. But by finding our value in our career or our job, we are making it an idol. When we sit in this chair and we say, I feel, therefore I am, we are making our feelings an idol. When we sit in this chair and say, I am significant because I'm a wife. I am significant because I'm in a romantic relationship. I'm significant because I'm a mother or father. We are making our romantic relationship or our marriage or our kids an idol. We are placing a burden on those people that they were never meant to carry. Because our significance and value is meant to be found in God. Not in those kinds of things. Some of us today need to confront our idols. We are looking to our careers. We are looking to our achievements. We are looking to our children. We are looking to our relationships to give us meaning and value. When the meaning and value of our life is meant to be found in Jesus. And this is a challenge to our idolatries today. Finally, though, this is also a comfort to our insecurities. Many of you walked in today with a label on your soul. You may not share that with very many people. You may not have shared your label with anyone else. But somewhere in the past, stuff has happened in terms of what you do, how you feel, or who you relate to. And the label on your soul says... I'm a failure. Or I have shame. Or I'm a reject. And Peter today is saying to you, no, you're not. Because your competency is in Jesus. And your worth is in Jesus. And your belonging is in Jesus. And that makes you incredibly precious. Our value and worth is not based on what we do or how we feel or who we relate to. Our value and worth is found in Jesus. Last week we introduced a new song uh, to you. I am who you say I am. And the band is going to come up and lead us in a time of, of response starting with the, that song. What that song is, is a declaration of exactly what Peter has said in this passage. I, I, I am not what I do. I am not what I feel. I am not who I relate to. I am who God says I am. And so what I want to invite you to do today is to take some time with God to reflect on this passage in the way that it might challenge you or confront you or comfort you. And we've got 
communion available today. We don't only have two tables at the front like we normally do here at Botany, but we've got also two tables towards the back as well. And so during this time of responsive worship, which is actually going to be longer than normal, so there's plenty of time, I invite you to go and take these communion elements as a way of celebrating who you are in Jesus. At the same time, there are these labels, more of them sitting on that table. And you don't have to, but if you would like to, I'll invite you to write a new label for yourself. And there's a few examples on each of these tables. Some of them say, I'm not ashamed or not rejected. Some of them say, deeply loved. A couple of them say, a living stone. I don't know what it is out of what, first, what Peter has said. But I want to invite you to think about the labels you wear and the way you value yourself and your sense of identity. And I want to invite you to take a new label today, whatever that might be. One that comforts, one that confronts, one that challenges. And so during this time of worship, just when you're ready, I want to invite you to take, if you want to write yourself a new label, go ahead. If you just want to take the bread and the cup, do that. But we're going to do a few more songs than normal. So please take your time. You know, if there's a bit of a line-up at the tables, just, just wait a bit longer. And as you're ready, let's just move and respond. Sound all right? We are not what we do. We are not how we feel. We're not who we relate to. As wonderful as all of those things may be, our value and our worth and our identity comes from Jesus. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. And thank you for the challenge and the reminder that this passage is. God, some of us have walked in today and we have to confess now that and we find our identity in our job. We find our identity in our kids. We find our identity in our acceptance of friends. We found, find our identity by being loved by someone else. God, those are idols. And we want to lay them down today and say we want to find our worth and value in Jesus alone and his belonging and his worth and his competency. Others of us, Lord, walked in today with labels like ashamed or rejected or failure across our souls. God, I pray you would help us gently remove those from our hearts and find a new label, accepted, loved, successful in Jesus. God, as we just come to you now in this time of worship, as we celebrate what Jesus has done for us, as we bow down before you, help us to grasp the huge change this makes. I am not what I do. I am not how I feel. I am not who I relate to. I am who you say I am. Amen.